The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I am pleased to welcome back artist Jody Wood, whose recent exhibit incorporates vulnerability theory in collaboration with Martha Feynman. The last time we were here, we talked about a little, we talked a little bit about some of your projects, some of your older projects, and I think that you recently had an exhibit in Sweden, right? Yeah, it opened in April. Um, so just, I don't know, I think six weeks ago it opened and it's up for a total of five months into September. And then after that, it's actually traveling to um, a Kunsthalle in uh, another town in Sweden in September through October. So it will actually like reach, uh, you know, some different towns and some different visitors. And it's up for a long enough time that you know, a lot of people can kind of come and continue to participate in it. So that's nice. Congratulations. And last time we chatted, you told me a lot about social art and what that is and a bit about how interacting, how, how interactive it is and how the process of interacting with it is part of the experience and sort of teaches, but also create social change. Can you tell me about how your current exhibit aims to do that and sort of what the what the whole experience is like when you come in and you interact with the exhibit? Yeah, sure. Well, I feel like creating social change is such a huge claim, but, and I've also been having a lot of doubts about, well, or just like acknowledgement of the limits of what art can do, because even though social practice is, it's not just representational, you know, it's not just like a painting or photograph of a social issue. There's some kind of participation or like inaction involved in the real world, but it still exists in a symbolic realm. It's not integrated into like sustainable life. Usually some projects are, but so I think that there are still in the way that like philosophy or something too it can it can be very it can help us like think about our reality in a different way but it's not necessarily going to like in and of itself create change and so I very quickly like back away from those claims because yeah I just think it's important to like to think of this as raising questions and not providing necessarily answers or solutions or like a treatment for these social problems. But what it is right now, so the exhibit itself, it is in a few, it's in some multiple parts. So there's social pharmacy, um, the Sweden iteration of that, which is basically a big red kind of translucent 
house that stores all of these home remedies from local people that I interviewed. And it's things that they're using for, um, you know, it can be beauty treatments, it can be something for somebody's even used for diabetes, uh, you know, and, and more serious issues or blood pressure issues. Um, but they're all things that you can find in nature or just buy at the grocery store and they're non-pharmaceutical kind of remedies that are that are coming from family knowledge or cultural knowledge. And so there's this kind of idea that, you know, the project is instead of having this knowledge stay in people's houses or in people's families, okay, it's kind of fun and, or like, maybe it's interesting to flip that cupboard inside out. So you have that kitchen cupboard, but it's in public and it's accessible by anyone. Um, and everybody adds to that. So basically visitors to the social pharmacy, you can take somebody else's remedy with you. It's an object. Uh, and then you can, you're invited to leave a recipe of your own that will then get turned into another object and added to the project. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's very interactive. And that's so interesting because I feel like there are, like there's some sharing of remedies and things, but it's not often that you get to see so many people's family remedies and like sort of histories like that. That's such a, it feels like such a personal thing to just share. Yeah, yeah. And I was also kind of playing with this idea of also, instead of having an art object that's like off limits, or that you just look at that you can't touch, and it, it's something that's sellable. These are actually like art objects still they're you know they're made by an artist I'm interpreting these conversations I'm having with people into objects that represent something they might use or something that they do use but in the end it is like you know they are art objects that are consumable and they are there may be something that has healing potential in some way, but it's unproven. So I, I have noticed that when people are trying these remedies, they will say, oh, I can feel it working. Like there was this appetite stimulant that was made from black currants and vodka. And it was meant to like help your stomach ache, or if you have a stomach ache or um, make you just provoke your appetite. And so when people would take a little sip of this as a sample, they'd be like, oh, I feel hungry now. I think it's actually working. Um, and so, but they're, you know, they're, they have been medically tested and that's why a lot of home remedies are pretty dismissed um, by the medical industry. But it's the same with art as well. Like what's the function of art in society? Does it have any kind of, like, what does it do to introduce art? Like, does it, is it, does it have healing potential? Is it, is it essential in society? And so I think that the project is also playing with asking these questions about like, you know, what's what the role of art is in society and can we change the art object to be something that is maybe usable or consumable or like less commercial in a way or less sellable, I guess. Yeah, that is, that is so cool. What has your experience been like from the time you conceived of this exhibit 
throughout the time that that it's been ongoing, that it's been active and you've been doing these interviews and also seeing how um, people come and interact with it? Yeah, well, it's been so interesting to me to see how the project is kind of has a different relationship depending on the culture that it's in as well, or like it kind of, it starts to say something maybe different about people's relationship with the healthcare system, depending on, you know, I did it in Sweden in the countryside when I first, this was last summer, I guess, last June. And I also did the project in New Jersey uh, in partnership with the homeless service agency. And that was very different. People's remedies were, um, some of them were overlapping, but a lot of them were in New Jersey, especially were kind of more about ways that people were avoiding going to the dentist or, or going to healthcare because they couldn't afford the medications. So then they had to kind of use these DIY solutions for, you know, for treating themselves. Um, and in Sweden, it's also, I mean, there's just differences too. I feel like urban and rural is very, you know, when I did the project in New Brunswick, it's a urban area. So there's not that much growing. You can't just go pick something. So a lot of it just came from the grocery store, came from the household. Whereas in Sweden, when I was doing it in the countryside, it's nature all around people, like not everyone, but a lot of people I talked to knew about the property, the medicinal properties of the things that are growing in their yard and could use those. Um, But I think Sweden has for now, like it, it's still for, for citizens has accessibility. You can go to the doctor when you need to. I mean, there are some limits to that. I think what I've heard, been hearing a lot is that, yeah, in Sweden, yeah, sure. We have access to healthcare. I can go see a doctor, but there's a waiting list. And if you have more money, you can skip the lines. So it's still a tiered system with shorter wait times. If you pay extra, it's also increasingly becoming privatized. And that's, that's starting to alert some people like, okay, maybe we don't want to go this route. I actually just learned from your newsletter (laughs) that, uh, that pharmacies, because Ulrika and Titi um, are at Lund University and they're colleagues of Martha's. And so they were talking about how pharmacies in Sweden used to be run by the state. Like uh, now they've recently, I think since only the last 15 years have become privatized. Um, And so that's one move. The education system here is also secondary education is starting to become privatized. Um, And so that is like, that is something that's happening. And in the U.S., it's already, you know, there's private hospitals, there's private insurance agencies. So you have to contend with, with just accessibility, depending on the region you're in, depending on what kind of insurance you have or don't have. And it's very dependent on like your specific location or just the specific moment where you happen to get sick. Yeah. But, but anyway, my, yeah, my experience has been like almost feeling like an anthropologist in a way, because I do feel like I'm, I've just been collecting a lot of people's experiences and stories, but, um, and kind of in my mind, just comparing, you know, these 
differences in where I'm doing the project, but also it's kind of, I never was, I never knew about like medicinal plants before or what kind of, you know, that you can just go find vitamin C by picking certain things in nature, picking little um, leaves in nature, you can just have vitamin C and like, so it's kind of, for me, been interesting because I've been looking more at what's around me and seeing, oh, this plant that grows in Sweden, it also grows in the U S that's interesting. I can use it here too. So yeah, I never grew up like that. I grew up, you know, going to the pharmacy if I had something wrong with me or taking aspirin or something like that. Yeah, that sounds like quite the experience. It sounds like it's been really educational for you. Yeah, yeah, it's been interesting. And now that the project has just been running on its own, because at first it started with me doing interviews and collecting this information from people and learning about them as well. And, you know, just meeting people one on one and hearing about how they use this remedy, I really felt a connection. And then when I had people visit the pharmacy, uh, I would be kind of this conduit between people. Uh, so it's like, okay, well, you should learn about Mutt's um, remedy for a sore throat if you have this problem. And then I would talk about him and what he does and then talk about his remedy. But then since the project has been running on its own, there's a Dropbox so people can write their remedy and drop it in the box. And this has been interesting too, because now I'm just imagining, I wonder who this person was who left this remedy and kind of trying to imagine what they might be like. Cause there's some really interesting ones that are more like uh, for emotional health too, or for stress, but they're uh, like more poetic. And so I really have this picture in my mind, like who this could be, but I haven't met them in person. That sounds like such a rich experience and like such a unique way to connect with people. Yeah. I mean, I definitely noticed this is a topic that, I mean, personally, I want to avoid it. Health is not, you know, I don't want to talk about um, going to the doctor or what kind of, you know, physical problems I might be having. And so in a way, this is bringing up these conversations between people who might not otherwise be talking about these anxieties. And so I think that that is also a function of the project where it is meant to be talking about not just physical health, but these dimensions of health that are related to emotional care and social inclusion and feeling like you know, you can discuss maybe some of your emotional problems with, with others in a way, not be so isolated. So that is something that I've been experiencing with the project and also just been like witnessing happen the project. Do you, do you think that any of that might be specific to the, global events that are happening right now. I know that here in the U.S. at least, a lot of people are very actively seeking out alternative healthcare remedies because, especially for dental care, because there are, you know, there's such a long wait just to see a doctor, just to get a regular health checkup right now, and things are getting so expensive out here. Mm -hmm. 
everyone is trying to find things that are like in their backyard or somewhere so that they don't have to go to the pharmacy. So they don't have to go to the doctor. Right. Oh yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that we have been seeing hospitals fill up and have maybe less capacity, or maybe we're just avoiding them in general because we're worried about getting COVID or something like that. And so we just want to like let the hospitals deal with these situations and try to find ways to be more self-reliant. And I think part of that is it can be positive because I think that there's a lot of knowledge that does exist um, in every single community. And I think we are like in America, at least have been very reliant on hospitals for everything, Um, you know, and, and not really, I mean, if you have a problem, you usually would just call your doctor and not call your friend, you know? So I think that we're definitely right now seeing the limits of hospital capacity and maybe looking for alternatives. But I do feel like people who have had limited access to insurance or been on Medicaid, I think that they've been having to do this far before, you know, COVID happened. I mean, I think there have been so many barriers to accessing care for if, if you're on Medicaid, you know, there's some provide, there's very few providers available in some areas. Uh, There's just many like administrative hoops to jump through. And so that's kind of what I was encountering in New Jersey too, was people who were just fed up and they were fed up with the, the kind of barriers to access and also the way that they were treated. I think, you know, they went to the ER. A lot of people just complained about you just go to the ER with something, but you just given an aspirin and sent home. So you might as well just do it yourself because you're not getting the care that you need. Thing how when you were when you were talking a bit about how there is this difference in why and how people feel when they come to when they come to your exhibit and they interact with it. What it reminded me of was how a lot of these remedies that have been turned into pills or that are pharmaceuticals, a lot of those things, most of those things do come from nature originally. Mm. We're so removed from that because in a, in a mm. lot of communities, we've lost that knowledge and we don't yeah. have, we've sort of, we've outsourced it or it's been removed depending on your historical take. But mm-hmm. right, exactly. A lot of value in getting people to talk about what remedies they have that they that they've managed to retain over time. Because, like you were yeah. saying, you can go outside and find something that has vitamin C. You know, you can you can really mm-hmm. use food as medicine. You can use nature as medicine, and we have for such a long time. But it's just so much of that knowledge has just been removed from so many of these communities. Yeah, for sure. And there was even a a leaf that you could chew that had an active ingredient that was an aspirin, a pain reliever, and, and it reduces your fever as well. But these are, yeah, I mean, in a way, I do feel like one 
thing that's happening is that the project is kind of becoming like a living library. It's like this human library that's dynamic and shifting and growing in real time because when people walk into this archive, they're seeing this library of people. I mean, it's the names of the person are on the remedies and what it is, but then it also provokes them to think about the knowledge that they might have that they don't think about too, because I think sometimes in certain families, you're like, oh, of course you do this when you're having a fever. This is what you do when you are, you want to stop blood loss or if you have a cut or something, but then that isn't, that doesn't translate like not, yeah, that just stays within each family. And I think you can research this stuff online, but there's something a lot more personal about, you know, seeing the actual object and, and knowing who it comes from or, you know, and, and this is all this knowledge, like who knows where it, some, some of it, it doesn't have a real location too. It's like some of it, oh, came from my mother, came from uh, my mother's mother, you know, and then, oh, I heard it from a friend, but I don't know where that friend heard it from. Maybe they got that from the internet at some point too. So it's like, we are kind of also living in a, a blender of knowledge where we can't really, we don't have a location of the origin of some of this knowledge. And yeah, and and different cultures also, you know, have different form, different knowledge too, that is within that culture that is so like obvious for people who grow up with it, but then for other people, they never have thought about it. So then, and I think with pharmaceuticals, another thing that happens is that these are highly concentrated doses. So this leaf that you might chew on to reduce your pain, like that, you wouldn't even really feel that. I think we've become desensitized also because of these, uh, you know, the expectation that we're going to have immediate results. Like I'm going to take this pill and it's going to make me feel better within 30 minutes. Um, and I'm going to feel it instantly working. And so that's given us, uh, different expectations too, for, for what we will have to go through or the suffering we might have to go through, or even a different expectation for our own vulnerability. Like we don't like to think of ourselves as vulnerable. We obviously don't want to be in pain. We're looking for the fastest solution, but with that also comes a cost too. I mean, you know, there's a lot of chemicals added to pharmaceuticals, but that besides that is a whole industry that is, very corrupt and marketing to, you know, grouping people up in these ways where it's easiest to market to them. So categorizing people, pathologizing these categories like aging, you know, not seeing aging as a natural process, but pathologizing it and, you know, treating it almost as if it's a disease. Uh, and, and also, a lot of big pharma will, will also kind of create these social norms where you should seek out these screenings and these medical treatments. Um, and so in a way it's very, 
like our over-reliance on hospitals is also partially due to these social norms where it's like, yes, of course you go in for these screenings every year. Um, of course you need to go in and like go to these follow-up treatments. But how much of that is really actually harmful? Um, I mean, over-treatment also comes with like real losses and it's complicated too. You need to understand the risks of getting these treatments and being over-treated. But that is something we don't look at, you know, these complexities we don't really get to look at. I also really love how much this brings people together. When you were talking, mm. people don't really, a lot of the times people can't create like a chain of custody of, of this information, of these mm -hmm. revenues. That just made me think of how much connection and trust is created through sharing remedies. Because when you ask somebody yeah. for a remedy that you then share with somebody else, or if you've learned of a remedy that you're sharing with somebody else, you got that from somewhere. And it also like, it also indicates that you have this like beautifully trusting relationship with this other person, if it's family, if it's a friend, whatever, even if it's the mm -hmm. internet, even if it's a Reddit forum, <laughs> um, it, it just indicates that you've had this relationship where you trust the source of this information with your health, you know, and to then share that with another person. I think that's, right. that's a really lovely form of connection, especially um, in a time where, as you're talking, as you were saying before, there is a certain amount of isolation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. And I think that it's unfortunate that these types of remedies that are trusted in communities, that they are treated with such skepticism by medical institutions, because that also creates alienation. I mean, I think we're also seeing a lot of people who weren't trusting public health information during COVID because it was constantly changing and having vaccine hesitancy. And that all traces back to trust um, and lack of trust in the system. And part of the reason for that lack of trust is because there's incredible alienation in these systems and people feel like they're not treated like humans, like complete whole human beings. I mean, also what stands out to me about Martha's work is the way that she sees individuals as very, uh, you know, interconnected and interdependent, but also takes each individual as a very unique being. And I think she constantly in her work tries to break down these categories between people and tries to caution us against grouping everybody together and legislating um, care depending on like your age. And I think that she talks about vulnerability as a universal inevitable part of every human. And I think it's actually a very radical theory in a way, uh, you know, because you look at other writers like Judith Butler, who talks about vulnerability too, and vulnerability and like, you know, our interdependence on systems. But I think Judith Butler has a very different way of looking at certain groups as being more vulnerable and not seeing vulnerability as a foundational existential condition. Um, whereas Martha does look at these universal 
interconnections of every human. Um, so, and I think we do need, I think we need more of that because in grouping people up and categorizing them to say that certain people are more vulnerable or less vulnerable, you're actually, Martha talks about this too, I think, um, but you actually start to get in these conversations of, well, then who deserves care, like the deserving and then the undeserving. So if you're not in a vulnerable in a vulnerable group, then you're undeserving of care. Whereas, you know, we all are deserving of care and we all need care. And so we need a responsive state that is going to serve everyone and be accessible to everyone. Um, and so this is just, it's it's such a foundational like theory. And I feel, I feel like the project is directly inspired by this theory too, because I am trying to think about access a lot, accessibility a lot, and what we have sacrificed in America in terms of like shaping our system around efficiency and productivity and innovation. I think that we've seen, we've kind of blindly like gone this direction for many years and what we've left out of the conversation is accessibility and so maybe we can you know lose a little bit of the efficiency in order to create more accessibility i mean that's a whole other conversation too but i guess i see how that i see that relationship with the work and i'm just constantly inspired by martha and and her work and her talks and her writing and yeah the way that she also talks about the you know, the way that we each each society regulates its healthcare is also indicative of like the collective values that we have. So what kind of how does our system, our care system reflect our collective values? And I think um, you know, in in one of the talks that she did, they were talking about how close the punishment system is to the care to our care institutions so how uh how our care institutions almost replicate our punishment institutions like they're if you are if you are um dependent on care and you have to be in an institution especially if you don't have much money then you are kind of treated like subhuman uh, you know i'm talking about like homeless shelters right now or you know, honestly, even hospitals can feel like a punishment system. They're, like I said, they're very alienating. They can be very cold, even though in both examples of shelters and hospitals, you can get some people, some individuals with incredible warmth who are, you know, exceptions, but that that is in spite of the system, not because of what the system is producing. Yeah, that's a lot of really good information. And I really like how you connect that sort of embeddedness that's in vulnerability theory to the project that you're doing, because it does really showcase how reliant we are on each other and on systems for everything. And in and, and this specifically for health, but as you're talking to me about your project, I'm, I guess, learning to see it as more than just 
health as something that's just separate from everything else. It's health as it is being connected to your community, being able to access certain institutions, like being able to care for your health. And of course, you know, that's going to vary depending on what's happening in your life, how much care you're going to need and your health, like how you are embodied, like how, how you are existing in your human body. That's going to, I say that like I'm some kind of alien, like how you are existing. <laughs> <laughs> in these vessels that we call the human body. <laughs> like all that will impact experience, you know, of remedies and also of um, your ability to access healthcare beyond that. Yeah, yeah. And I think about this Joseph Bowie's quote. Joseph Bowie was an artist and he said, if you cut your finger with a knife, bandage the knife, not the wound. And so I think you know, my mind when, you know, when I'm talking, thinking about like physical ailments or people suffering, I also want to think about how intertwined with the system that is and how much of the suffering is exacerbated by the system and how we can, instead of putting the burden on the individual to be stronger or like just, you know, practice better self-care if instead we're looking at, you know, healing our systems or like, you know, alleviating some of the suffering on that level. Yeah. If you don't mind sharing, what were some of the remedies for like emotional dysregulation or emotional turmoil? Yeah. Well, um, there was actually this one that I brought with me back to the apartment, but it's, I ended up turning it into a, a globe where you see a photograph of a blue sky with some leaves in front of it. And there's a, a kind of the instructions are written on the surface of the globe. And so it says, the remedy is for stress, emotional distress. It says, lay down on your back under a tree and look at the sky leaves, listen to the leaves in the wind and smell the air, use all of your senses. So there's these kinds of ways of coming into the present moment and uh, also connecting with nature. That's a real big one. Um, I think that that is one thing that I've noticed also being in Sweden or being in, in the countryside in general is like how healing nature really and how restorative it really is and how you just feel like you're recharging or I do at least. I mean, I was, I grew up in the country, so I, I definitely have that kind of response to it, but. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, it's not new, but there is something that's called forest bathing. Have you heard about that? Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Popular practice in so many communities and for so many people, but for some of us, I think especially those of us who are like very separated from nature or who live in high-risk buildings and go to work in another high-risk building and drive or have to take like some sort of like emissions producing um, vehicle to get there, to get to and from work. I think for a lot of us, that's something that's really missing. So I think that there's so yeah. much value in and sharing that, even though to some folks it might be totally obvious. Like, well, you really need it's, to go out. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's so it's one of these. Well, a lot of these remedies are so simple, like that, where it's like, oh yeah, obviously, yeah, you can just 
you know, go outside and lay down in, in the grass for a little bit and become, you know, be present in the moment. But it is something that even if you live in the countryside, you overlook just because everybody everywhere is so busy, you know, everybody's rushing somewhere and it's very hard to slow down. I think are like so many, like across cultures and across societies, everybody's just getting more and more pressed for time. And having a lot of, uh, a lot of, well, social problems, which are just related to physical health too. But I think that that kind of, that inability to just remind ourselves of these simple things is a product of this overstimulated kind of over, overly productive, you know, way that we are, yeah, are kind of going through life, but it's good to, yeah, it's, it's definitely good to remind ourselves of that or to have somebody else remind us of that. Yeah. Before we end, is there anything else that you would like listeners to know about the exhibit or anything that you'd like folks to remember about our conversation today? I guess we mostly focused on the social pharmacy, but there's also other parts of the exhibit too. There's a a video installation and some paintings that I was doing of data portraits of my research of hospital systems and relationship models. And the thought I would leave with is just that this, I think we are in relationship with each other and that is very tangible. And that's something that I wanna talk about in the show, but I also wanna talk about how we are also in relationship with these systems as well. Um, And so these systems are something that we are kind of invisible, but we are also, you know, in they affect our lives and they affect our relationships as well. So that's something that I wanna, you know, keep researching, but that is part of the show too. If you have a little bit more time, would you be willing to talk just briefly about the other parts of the exhibit? Yeah, I have that the red cure house that is the Sweden iteration of social pharmacy. And I also have the New Jersey iteration of social pharmacy, which is a kind of accordion style um display that it it can fold up like a book and it's a carrying case and then it expands outward um, and that's full of remedies of people that I met in New Jersey and I also did uh, you know I activated that with the service agency so I would put that out on a table and invite people to take some of those with them and contribute new recipes so it was when that project grows, it you can add more um, more kind of panels to the accordion. I'll, I can send you photos. Sorry, it's kind of hard to <laughs> imagine just uh, by talking about it. But there's also um, photographs of this social pharmacy in different locations, um, and then this this video installation. A lot of it was interviews that I conducted with people I was meeting in New Jersey about trust uh, in hospitals and some of their experiences in hospitals. And then we worked with actors to um, to kind of mirror their stories and also uh, 
work through these narratives with an actor so they could see somewhat like how their story, they could listen to their own story coming from an actor. So these, this is the video installation that's in one of the rooms. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of this, this is part of my research, but in a way my practice is a research-based practice. So it's all process and it's all meant to be the final form is is a process-based you know type of way of working but when I was first starting social pharmacy in New Jersey I was looking at okay so what are people's experiences why is there such low trust in hospitals and then also because poverty is a cause and a consequence of poor health uh, there's a lot of overlap in this, you know, in the service, in the, with the clients of the service I was working with, a lot of them were struggling with health issues con continuously, like had daily health issues, but yet avoiding hospitals. So then my question, my research question was, well, if people are struggling with health and avoiding hospitals, like what are they doing to take care of themselves? And so Anyway, that, that's why, in addition to the carrying case, I wanted to add the video as well, because I think it needs more context, um, especially showing in Sweden out of context. Um, but then I also have an installation of these paintings on plexiglass that are representing some of these systems, like how the interworkings or data portraits of of some of the hospital systems or what I'm researching with that. So like, uh, you know, for example, I think, you know, I would, I, one of the most interesting articles I read was on the obsessions of, with metrics in healthcare. And, um, and this was written by, uh, let me remember his name, Matthew Edwards, he's a doctor. And this was just like a speech he did at a vascular surgery conference, but it was so good. I was like, oh my God, he's really like capturing this problem in healthcare and how we start with distrust. We have distrust in the healthcare. We want to find a solution to distrust. And so we end up proposing solutions that are very metric-based, like you know, to increase trust, uh, let's give our physicians these training sessions so that they make more eye contact with the patient. And it was like, you know, treating people like as if empathy doesn't come naturally. Uh, but anyway, so everything, every single like outcome and response comes through a metric, but then that way of, you know, that way of looking for solutions by using metrics, it also creates this way that behavior will be just funneled into these metrics so that um, it will just incentivize certain behavior and punish other behavior. So for example, um, you know, when, when there's a lot of readmissions, when someone who is without health insurance uses the ER and as their primary care, basically, and they readmit over and over to ER, because that's their only solution, doctors will say, what, you know, I actually talked to somebody, you know, I worked with somebody in New Jersey who was telling me these stories that every time he'd go in the ER, he started to be asked, like, what are you doing here? You were just here. Why are you back here? And he felt very like, uh, 
he he did not feel welcome, obviously, because people in the hospital system are penalized for readmissions. So it actually counts against them if they see the same patient coming into the ER over and over. So then, you know, and as a solution to that dehumanization, you know, they impose all these other metrics like making more eye contact for a certain number of seconds. But then people are just kind of squeezed into this metric box. And that also creates just like a lack of meaning in your profession. If you're working in the healthcare system, you don't feel like you have autonomy anymore. You're always meeting the metric. And then because you're demoralized, that also affects your workplace culture and that affects the patients negatively. So then the patients are more dissatisfied. And with that outcome of dissatisfaction, the solution is more metrics. Uh, instead of you know, gearing our systems toward access, which would look completely different. So then these are some of the data visualizations that I've, I have represented in the, in that installation. That sounds like a really amazing exhibit. Um, I look forward to seeing more pictures of it. And uh, if I get a chance, if it's near Georgia, near Atlanta, anytime. I'd yeah, that would be great. Oh, look for spaces. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me again. I've learned a lot and I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.